Good morning, Bendis and non-Bendis alike, and welcome to the Republic City Dispatch, a radio program covering Nickelodeon's Legend of Korra series. This week, it's a night of a thousand stars as the who's who of Republic City show up for Varric's ultimate mover. Varric's plot is foiled by a real-life nut-tuck performance while Korra and the Elder Air family charge into the spirit world. Summon your four hosts, Matt, Dave, Davindra, and Joanna. Hello, welcome to Republic City Dispatch. I am Matt Patches, and with us, as always, uh, we have Devendra Hardwar. Hello, hello. Dave Gonzalez. Hello. And Joanna Robinson is back. Hello. See how excited we were? I know. <laughs> I know, it's <laughs> I good. It. People, people demand you. You're in demand. Um, okay. Today we are talking about another double header. Um, the, the best way to watch Korra, in my opinion. Um, we get two episodes back-to-back with almost an invisible segue, which I really appreciate. We get Night of a Thousand Stars and Harmonic Convergence, finally, just an episode that embraces this ridiculous phrasing. Um, before we get too far, Dave, I think you... Or, or Actually, one thing we wanted to mention is, you know, last night these episodes aired at 8 p.m. It was wonderful. Um, and then, of course, Nickelodeon decided that, well, you all, the fans, uh, reblog something on Coronation enough to um, earn them the finale early. It went online at midnight Eastern Standard Time, and we got two more episodes. So today we are only going to talk about the two episodes that actually aired on television, just so that um, we can dissect them and talk about them, because they deserve to be talked about. They're wonderful episodes, um, and not to get too far ahead of ourselves. So we'll end up talking about the finale uh, in about a week. Um, So Dave, what went down in this episode, briefly? (laughs) (laughs) All right. well, it's two episodes, so it's not going to be that brief, but as brief as I can make it, Bolin visits Mako in prison to tell him about Varric's big nuck-tuck finale screening at the pro-bending arena. Mako tells Bolin to keep an eye open because Varric has been plotting something evil. At the red carpet premiere, red carpet from the Fire Nation since they make the best red stuff over there, Varric conspires to kidnap President Raiko to force a war with the Northern Water Tribe. Bolin heroically saves the day in sync with his fictional counterpart's triumph. Mako gets let out of jail and congratulated by Beifong, but Korra shows up and doesn't remember that her and Mako broke up, and Asami is left sad for another break between seasons because Mako doesn't tell her as Team Avatar gets possession of Varric's battleship to make it to the Southern Spirit Portal. Said portal is surrounded by Unalak's forces who have quickly shut down the Southern Resistance, including Korra's father. Amassing his troops by the spirit portal, Team Avatar only gets through thanks to the tactical karma of Boomi. While Asami and Tanrock depart on Uki and Mako, Bolin, Korra, Tenzin, Kaya, and Boomi all go into the spirit world to find Janora and stop Unalak and Batu from merging to form the Dark Avatar. Korra is unable to close the portal by the beginning of Harmonic Convergence, and Batu is released, and that's the end of our doubleheader. Woof! That is a big episode. Um, Before we dive into it, I just wanted to remind people that if you listen to Republic City Dispatch every week, we would really appreciate if you subscribed on iTunes, if you listen to it only on Coronation, or if um, to to go on iTunes and leave us some ratings and reviews. I'm looking now. Thank you to uh, Soul Sister 934, uh, Moro Flamenco, Rose Mariakic, and Mumunududududa. I can't pronounce that one. Who was that all first one Soul Sister? What? No, Soul Sister. Hey. Soul Sister. No, hey. all these people um, have recently reviewed the show and are just writing the nicest things possible. Someone said that they think this is the best podcast along with Radio Lab, which is like 
just an insane comment. Oh, I'm sorry, but that's crazy. Um, but thank you to everyone oh, who has okay, been sure. rating. We'll take it. Yeah, we'll yeah. take that. Totally we'll take true. it. Totally um, so thank you to everyone who's been rating and reviewing the show. And we'd really appreciate other people jumping in and throwing in comments because um, it just helps get the core conversation out there. Um, so, Devendra, before we started podcasting, you mentioned that maybe you only needed beginnings part one and two, th- these two episodes, and maybe the finale to really feel satisfied by this whole season. Am I crazy, or is this the way we want to watch Korra? These two episodes, an hour long. I feel like the story <laughs> is told more elegantly, and, yeah. and the action is weaved in better. Like, the hour-long format is how we love watching Korra. And that's something you know we've mentioned before on the podcast. I think even during season one, uh, the idea that it always felt like it wasn't enough. And um, especially for an adventure series like this, Korra always felt more mature. It felt like one of those hour-long TV shows, right? It felt like something like Justified or even Breaking Bad, that level of narrative. So to break that down to something that's half an hour in bite size always felt like a detriment to me. And uh, yeah, these hour-long double episodes that we've been getting this season kind of prove that because they've all been amazing. I could definitely agree with that, especially with this episode. I don't know if it's just I'm so happy to be back with the old animation studio or if this episode is especially well plotted, both mm-hmm. with the Bolin dual action sequence that's happening with the Nuktuk movie and with the sort of air assaults uh, that goes bad and becomes sort of a comedy scene with Boomy. But it's like the division <laughs> of the action and story, plus them all being so well animated, sort of came together for this that kind of made me want to forget like weird battles like escaping from the southern water tribe at the beginning with that sort of seemed really anticlimactic when i saw what they were building to right yeah it's, and uh, i i i agree i think this was the best this and what comes later best action that i've seen from the whole avatar series so that might be overstating because I haven't seen all of the original series. I, I totally agree with you. I think Bolin's fight in the pro-bending arena is probably the best 15-minute 15 se- sequence in the show's history. I think the action is amazing, and I think the juxtaposition of the of the movie, the mover, um, uh-huh. and the action is just... I mean, I was comparing it, I think, in my Vulture review to Inglorious Bastards meets Kill Bill. That's what we're seeing here. This is a Tarantino episode, um, and I just thought it was fantastic. And I and Dave, to your point, it's interesting. Like, how much does Studio Mir make these episodes? I wonder if there's just more directorial freedom working with Studio Mir because early in the season, I I was kind of pining for Joaquim dos Santos and um, Ki Juan Ryu, who directed all the episodes of last season, um, and to to the testament of, of Ian Graham and Colin Heck who kind of double-dutied on these two episodes. Um, I just wasn't getting a lot from their their eye in those early episodes that weren't Studio Mir. And suddenly, the door opens. You know, what we, we seem to have so much more from them on a directorial standpoint because they're working with this other studio. So it might not just be that the animation becomes detailed. More, there's more freedom for movement and for innovation within the mm-hmm. in the scripts, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know without knowing if there's a significant amount of difference in the number of drawings that are made, but it seems like Studio Mir just uses those drawings better. So something like in this episode when Tonrock and Unalak are fighting and Tonrock does a slow motion dive at Unalak, if you look at how the frames are changing, they're not 
all changing at the same time to sort of give that stilted slow motion feeling. So you get mm. this idea that his hands extending and that his body's sucking up behind him and that you really get like the motion that's coming at it. So it's not so much that Studio Mir is adding all these extra frames and adding blinks where they don't have to be, which they are doing, which is great. But it's that they are using the economy of when these drawings change to sort of add to character moments, which I feel like the previous studio didn't do so well. They would more likely just have two characters sort of cross-panning against each other and going right. in and out of focus, but not things that required more drawings. I, um, it's your fault that I do this, but I now look more to the background characters than I used to, um, oh. just to see like what's going on. And I'm now probably right. going to plant this, I'm uh, inceptioning this idea to people listening here, but I, li I like looking at the backgrounds <laughs> because of how much this world is living and breathing. In the other animation studio, you know, everyone's just kind of standing there in the background. Now with Studio Mirror, mm -hmm. it's like people are blinking or moving. There's one scene... In this episode where Korra is, t I believe she's talking to Mako, um, but behind her, Tenzin is having a silent conversation with Bumi and Kaya. And you don't hear any of it, which is a little strange, but you, you see the mouths moving and it's like, it's that level of detail. It's just adding a little more atmosphere to it by making the all the characters in a frame be alive. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. interesting because uh, if you're part of the iTunes season pass or what have you, you get like little storyboard sections and they show how it's developed and they've released one for each episode they've also released on iTunes. And so I think what happens is that the they get sent off with these basic keyframe drawings what the characters are supposed to look like and they get the animatic that, you know, we've seen posted on Coronation or you've seen at a con where it's sort of the scene cut together, drawn really roughly uh, with the voice track, and then it's Studio Mir's job to come up with the in-between frames that come in between each of those expressions. So it makes sense to me that Studio Mir is adding things, because I can't imagine that they were just less expressive storyboards for the first half of the season, and now there isn't. <laughs> well, right. they might know the limitations of what that studio can do, so that's possible. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, there's there's a... There's a difference between a head turn and a blink happening at the same time and them mm -hmm. happening at two different times. It also just might be what I'm reacting to. Well, something we talked about, too, when Beginnings 1 and 2 came out was, uh, you know, the, the older studio came back. And I really wonder how much the workflow of this season kind of affected all that, right? Because yeah. it seemed like, yeah, Beginnings 1 and 2, a very important double feature episode that you kind of may have needed more time for. And the same thing for all of these, you know, uh, this the, these two episodes and then the finale stuff. Like, you need more time to work on those. So I wonder, just in the general process of actually, you know, animating these episodes if they had more time to do it. And that's, yeah. 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 At, at least they know the importance of going out with a bang, I would say. Right. These, right. This back half is is pretty much washing away the memories. I, I see people on Tumblr and Twitter just going like, I wasn't with the show early on, you know, I was having doubts, and now my mind has been blown, and, like, that's all you need. That's what, that's the important part. Yeah. Exactly. Everyone's just going to remember the back end of the yeah. season. Um, but it's interesting, the characterization, and I don't know, it's not all the animation, though. It's the writing as well. Like Lin Beifeng, who we had such problems with, is like back, back on our team and like firing who she needs to fire finally, and that sort of finally. stuff. I know, you know she, like, she she so nonchalantly brings Mako back into. You're going to be a great detective. Sorry for putting you in jail. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, 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 the show was the problem terrible right? for a couple episodes. <laughs> 
because she's myself again yeah it's a total 180 and we only see it like there's there's really no like apology from her either no like there's no it's just like oh well oh yeah i guess you were right so you're awesome slightly forgivable yeah, they, like, because gave, of the rest they gave of the him a standing so ovation but i was like i feel like he, he deserves more than the standing <laughs> ovation yeah i would be pissed off it's like stop clapping for me i was right but i've been in jail for this like for Throb. four days so screw you guys abandoned me for no reason <laughs> even my own brother asami like, wouldn't even come visit me <laughs> I've been having um, weepy anime boy moments in prison alone. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Um, and then the creepy boy twin, which is Desna, right? Correct. Esca versus Correct. Desna. Desna. Um, he like that's a character that I feel like we didn't get any feel for right, all season. So important. For the back in here, yeah. It just like all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's a character worth noting, and it was sort of overshadowed, I think, by the Eska stuff earlier. So, I don't know. I liked the the background character moments as well. Well, Joanna, I wanted to ask you something as a Game of Thrones scholar. Oh dear, uh, which is what I'm proclaiming you as. Um, <laughs> I kept I kept thinking of Game of Thrones in the way that this entire two parter was orchestrated. Um, just, you know, the opening of this episode is kind of a coda to the previous one where uh, Tenzin comes back with Janora's body and presents it to Pema. And he's like, I screwed up. Uh, she's lost in the spirit world. And then we don't see them for half an hour, which I think is impressive. But I still feel the resonance of that introduction. I think Game of Thrones does that really well. You know, they have to spin so many plates in the air with right. so many characters and like who do you concentrate on can you dedicate a whole episode to Bolin um or a half an episode just to Bolin yes you can if you introduce if you hit us with a really poignant emotional beat at the beginning and then you can kind of drift towards Bolin and Republic City and what's been going on we haven't seen these guys in three or four episodes do you feel like Game of Thrones is there something about Game of Thrones that gets that so right or do you see that here comparisons there or am I crazy? Um, no, you're not crazy. Um, and, I, and I like the point you made. And I really like that both Bolin and Boomy get to their like hero moments um, in these episodes. But I think what this these episodes do that Game of Thrones can't do is bring everyone back together. And Game of Thrones is constantly like flinging people farther afield from each other. And that's sort of some of the problems in the story like the very few problems in the storytelling of game of thrones is there are so many characters to juggle and they like never get back together and in this at least you had like team avatar reuniting the threads coming back together sort of as we get closer to the finale which you know i appreciate so does that make sense um but but i i agree with what you said about the the coda at the beginning that poignancy and how interesting it was to watch them just as you say in the background, watch them transport Janora's lifeless body around, like sort of heave her off the sky by sin. Like I was like, this is really upsetting it's to so watch sad. this girl's body like just sort of carted around in the background. So it's weird to me how much crap we had to sit through in order to make all of these uh, various attacks on people emotionally resonant to everybody at the same time. Like, I could see why we need to spend so much time with Varric's uh, war plots just to sort of, you know, separate Mako and Bolin and have them doing something. But it sort of gets ended once, just very publicly. And granted, the Bolin action scene's awesome, but they, considering, like, the first half of the season 
was sort of positioning Varric somewhere where pre-beginnings he could have been as big of a bad as Unalak was. It seemed like it sort of fizzled out there. And if it would have come earlier, I don't know if I would have enjoyed it more as a mid-plot and then maybe moved some of the more Air Family stuff to later. I don't know. It's it's really weird when you get to these episodes that are satisfying in their own, but right. they're they're coming from a line of breadcrumbs that I what didn't exactly enjoy laying down the first time. They're not it's they're like, not grand like they're not grandly fulfilling, you know. They're not um we don't feel like we'd be building to this momentous occasion, but we find the visceral action to be satisfying. Exactly. I think we might have gone out of the way once again to give Asami something to do, which makes me sad because she seems like a character that should have endless things to do. I wish she but. had, yeah, more involvement in kind of putting Varric's story to rest. She seems entangled with him. Yeah. I also wanted her to help Bolin fight because we know she can fight. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where she was. I mean, like, you know, I'm glad Bolin had his huge moment, but she didn't do anything sort of fighting wise and we've seen her fight before so well, we've, i mean she was the whole air attack so nobody right, else right, right. second things. episode i just meant in the first episode yeah. around the president she just sort of like disappeared in that whole yeah interaction so that was by the way that whole thing like um i definitely got some game of thrones vibes there but it was a cool like this is uh it felt like they were trying to recreate lincoln's assassination or something like it yeah. felt like here's this big show um you know there's some plot going on we don't quite know what it is i thought it was going to go to that level and not just the kidnapping but uh i kind of love the allusions to all of that stuff well, I think that's what what's it? so fantastic about that sequence. The mm-hmm. parallel action is really impressive, and I just feel like I haven't seen something competently designed in book two like that, where you can have Bolin sniffing out the clues while this devious action is happening, and we're right. cutting to the movie. And the movie is satisfying enough. You know, this parody of Flash Gordon is just so fun <laughs> to sit through that that can kind of draw our attention in, and then as we kind of flash back to this this treacherous plot that's it's really right. whiplashing us and that's exciting it's also yeah. ingeniously staged too because they're doing it at the old uh you know the bending stadium. arena i know yeah. Yeah. which arena. is t- a terrible like... theater i mean it's in the round and the screen yeah. is on one side <laughs> if you get Probably seats on the other theater. side you're screwed right. and there's but water sure, like, in there <laughs> yeah the idea of putting that all up together like just setting the actual movie premiere there makes a lot of sense and I can like by the point where Bolin is fighting on the stage again like that it all comes together in a, in a great way well, I thought of you because we haven't because got much they blew up the cultural the cultural center earlier in the season <laughs> ah. so the, theater's, the theater's gone but I picture that more as a library that wouldn't be able to house a movie premiere on the side of a building the pro bending <laughs> is much more of the Grauman's Chinese theater stand in <laughs> And I love, I mean, I love the golden age Hollywood vibe of like walking the red carpet and the way that this episode's really able to luxuriate in that moment. That's another thing that comes with having an hour of content or, you know, to tell a story, that canvas. You get to take a deep breath and Varric can chat with Raiko on the carpet and we can kind of soak in. And this is another nod to Studio Mirror. It's just like the the atmosphere on the red carpet is so alive it's everything's glowing um Mm -hmm. and i just love that also i was curious if people thought that um president Raiko's wife buttercup looked like um filipina first lady imelda marcos anybody maybe that was (laughs) you're really stretching maybe that was just i i as soon as i saw her i thought that's imelda marcos but that makes no sense (laughs) as a reference but surprisingly like sultry 
that like little interchange they had when they were watching the movie. She's oh like, yeah, they, they got the president just right. I was like, what is going on? For was sure? that an invite to like go to the back room or something? <laughs> I don't understand. Um, yeah, and then we had the ginger stuff. So you have like Hollywood politics, you know, and like fake celebrity couples as part of this plot, you know, randomly. But also, I was wondering what you guys thought about the president's response later when they alert him to the problem and he sort of has this policy of non-involvement. Uh, um, I think it's Ghostbusters. Where, Ghostbusters. you know... <laughs> more, more than a political allegory. It. Yeah, he's totally <laughs> against it until the giant thing shows up in his bay that's going to destroy the city. And I then, mean, it then is then Ghostbusters because that light is jetting out of the ground and there's, like, ghosts flying around it. That's, like, that's iconography of Ghostbusters. But, it, but at that point, he was right, wasn't he? Like, to keep all the people actually at the city. Yeah, they probably would have been killed. I don't know. We could have seen <laughs> a General Iroh help with that assault on the southern air thing, and maybe we wouldn't have had... We wouldn't it. have gotten to the city, you know? Yeah, we wouldn't have had to rely on Boomy's action sequence, which I want to also say... Amazing. are just as hard to write as Bolin fights with his screen counterpart, because, <laughs> like, the, the sort of... Um, escalation of events that gets to a point where uh, Boomy can take out an entire camp of people by accident. Well, it's it's a great Buster Keaton yes. sequence, basically, and it was is fantastic because <laughs> normally we see him as like this bumbling fool, but hey, maybe maybe some of his tall tales are actually true. Like at the end, uh, I think Tenzin was like, "How did you manage to take out this entire encampment? I did it all with my trusty flute." And he's right. Yeah. <laughs> His yeah, stories like, are oh, true. Get it? You'd never believe me anyway. But I want <laughs> now. I want like a boomy backstory adventures where we get to see like the hog monkeys or whatever. And all but the no things. dialogue, no dialogue, just all silent <laughs> film, just all like all action. I kept there were so many spinoff opportunities in this episode. I really want like a Nuck Tuck comic book or or <laughs> web series or something. There's so many options here. Um, but Devendra, I kept thinking of Cowboy Bebop during that sure, sure. that moment. I feel like in oh. Cowboy Bebop, the music especially really brings that sequence right. to life. And in Cowboy Bebop, I feel like they're always crashing their their space planes or whatever into buildings, and they're just creating havoc, and that's how they get just out of every situation. Sequences. Actually, that goes all the way back to Lupin the Third, which is, um, you know, that, that is a great... That's a Miyazaki, Lupin's, isn't that? Is that well, a, Lupin, Kakula, oh. Kogli, uh, Castle of Cogliostro is Miyazaki. I think that was actually that was his, his first, first film. film. Yeah, yeah. An amazing film actually has one of the best animated chase sequences you'll ever uh, you'll ever see too. So I'd recommend uh, if you like the boomy stuff in this, go see that film. Uh, but all the Lupin films are also about the same sort of thing, like just extended action sequences, crazy capers, and he definitely felt uh, Cowboy Bebop lifts from that for sure. And yeah, so this I would say goes all the way back to that. I felt like the action in this episode or these two episodes was so well not just or- well orchestrated but well integrated um mm-hmm. i you know flashing back to ton rock in the in the early on in this episode felt a little clunky to me we haven't been talking about him at all and then all of a sudden he's like leading an insurgents against these invading waterbender we've waited and, too long yeah Let's just go yeah you have waited too long <laughs> why have you been standing on this mountain for like 10 episodes go buddy go yeah, it really made me wish like if they had some sort of communications like they have radios they have yeah, something that's but it's like point. if if they could coordinated this somehow like i feel like this this all would have gone better the sky like, bison mail sky bison mail I, service has gone down exactly 
during the. I Civil forgot War. my favorite. That reminds me of my favorite moment of comedy and during Bolin's fight when they flash to the announcer and the audience, <laughs> who's like you know just a bystander but also commenting <laughs> on the fight. He can't not comment. It's great. It's all. It's all he could do. It's all he has. Yeah. Uh, this these two episodes, by the way, great little moments of comedy, and that's kind of yeah. what I love about it's kind of bringing some of the flavor of the original series back here too. Uh, like when they're on the plane, um, I think uh, Bolin has the greatest line ever. Yeah, I'm an earthbender strapped to a plane, hundreds of feet in the air. How do you think I'm doing? <laughs> um, and just simple visual things too, like when uh, when. Um, Bumi is trying to sneak into the camp and you have Pabu and Naga in stealth mode just leaning up to oh the wall. Oh my god, up against the great. wall? I this lost so good. It. <laughs> like tiny little things that are very like animated gif worthy, but are very memorable too. Yeah, I actually, also, oh god. Well, everyone's face when Korra walks up, you know, and kisses Mako. Right. Asami's face, <laughs> Bolin's face, and then Mako's face when she's like, was the fight bad? And he was like, ah, ah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was great. Wait, since good. since you bring this up, we should probably dwell on this moment for a little bit about this oh, uh, reemerging. Should we dwell on well, it? Trying. Well, should we if talk they're about the Masami ship, if they're going to dwell on it in the show, then we should dwell on it on All our right, show. Here's, here's the thing. Oh man, Dave has a lot of feels here, and he's gonna <laughs> feel it out. It. <laughs> I'm gonna go back to our praising the animation by saying, at least if we're going to get a confusing Mako, we got a very expressive Mako. Right down from what uh, Joanna was talking about when he gets kissed all the way to watching Korra on the battleship behead that dummy and deciding that maybe he shouldn't break the news to her. And then I like the idea that his advice he gave Bolin early on kind of comes back and bites him in the butt. The only thing I don't like is I know people are going to be obsessed, upset because they thought the Mako Asami thing was real when really it just sort of ended up being like a plot contrivance. I think is it a plot contrivance or is it a realistic rebounding situation? I'm I'm back and forth between yeah. how much this is kind of just twisting a vice to to kind of put pressure on our characters, or or if it's if it's a realistic progression of how um, tumultuous teenage relationships could be. I mean, it, Mako's in a weird position where he has mm-hmm. he's trying to figure out delineate, and, with, and this is very difficult. I would say from experience, um, delineating <laughs> uh, f- like friend love and like romantic love, and what right. those differences really are, and who who fits what category for him. I mean, that's what he's doing in the finale. But not to get ahead of ourselves, what happens in these two episodes is he decides to withhold information from Korra which is something I hate as a character you know, right. thing. And then, quick, Asami, you take Tonrock and get out of the series. But he loves so, her, so it's, it, it's yeah. difficult. How can, you, is, how can you expect him complex. to just come out with that? I, I also do expect, like, um, it, they were in a tough spot, right? Like, they were in the middle of uh, getting ready to launch this assault. So you really don't want to have your avatar mind in another place, you know. I feel like that would be that that puts the fate of the world. Yeah, it's, check it's, your it's baggage. Don't bring it in carry on. We're about yeah, to save the world. <laughs> There's a thing like when, when, if Joss Whedon did this, they would be arguing about how they felt nonstop and it would make total sense. Oh, he just, he definitely does the thing though. Maybe quipping while bending is what you're saying. Yeah, or then like, you know, <laughs> Bolin doesn't want to be on the side of the plane, but instead of right. Mako being like, everything's fine, he'd be like, I think this is a good time. No, that sounds like a, a dumb J.J. Abrams Mission Impossible 3 
what tactic? <laughs> those are reasons to have the dynamic instead of just let's make everyone feel awkward so Mako has a reason to look. Okay, if Mako hadn't been dating Asami again and Korra just didn't remember they broke up, it would have been this similar amount of awkward without devaluing the character of Asami. But I think Mako and Asami getting back together, like now now we sound like teenagers, by the way. <laughs> this, this sounds hilarious. But it did feel natural and well, Asami is awesome. Like I, She I, is awesome. I can't no one needs to date Asami. I was about to say, Devendra is crushing on Asami, so Devendra, you I'm crushing only on Asami. I, would, I want Asami to be the next president of Republic City. Ooh. Ooh. President all. shiny hair. I would vote for her. <laughs> shiny for her. hair, fast car. <laughs> but um, what I was going to say about that was, oh, oh, uh, when, it, when it wasn't clear whether or not Korra's dad was alive, I was like, well, if Korra's dad dies, Mako has to marry her. Like, he's never breaking up with her. Her dad <laughs> dies now. There is no good time to break up with her. They are together forever. Just so. a sad relationship, a sad, loveless relationship. Yeah, exactly. Right, shipping that in a TV show. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also interesting to watch, and, and we should talk about this more in the finale, but how do you date the Avatar? I mean, I guess Katara sure. like, didn't have a problem with it, but like... How do you date someone so powerful? Well, I think that's been the long arc of Lois Lane and Superman. You know, their challenge has always been, how do you date a superhero or the superhero? Um, Except Superman was never as interesting, so... This, wow. We got a Marvel guy, Marvel fanboy over here. That's the problem with Superman. It's also got that gender flip of like, how do you, as right. a man who wants to be the hero, date a woman who is so impressive as Korra? I, although I love that Mako never has trouble with that, right? Because he understands what she is, her role. And I love that they never have the, oh, I have to be the man in this relationship fight. Right. He's more uh, concerned I, about um, emotion and like hurting her feelings. Yeah. And do you want me that's to support why he can't... you or do you want me not to support yeah, you? Yeah, so I I'll love that right. line. <laughs> That line continues to hit me. Like in the middle of the night, I think the about truth. that. What are, we, what are we doing here? I'll do it. I'll do it. Whatever it is. Uh, well, I, I'm sure we'll return to this conversation when we discuss will the we, finale. Will we patch it? I think we probably <laughs> will. We'll have to talk about a mysterious, yeah, missing character in the final, in the finale. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't know if somebody. people uh, have, have strong thoughts about the Unalot. Like what? Let's talk about Unalak a little in these episodes and this whole kind of culmination of his plot. I mean, he has an amazing throwdown with Tonrock in this. And just, again, another great action scene where they're really pushing the rules of bending and, like, how they can use ice as, as punching gloves and, like, fighting each other. Two waterbenders fighting, I think, is really intriguing. And, they're having so much fun. Oh, like, yeah. I feel like this entire series came about because they were just fanficking. The creators were fanficking their own, like, bending, you know, fights <laughs> or something, bending choreography. There's so many great like surfing, water bending, surfing moments right, that the right. twins get and stuff. Oh yeah, and they surf down the mountain, the snow mountain in the beginning with the ice. With the ice. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Not not since um, James Bond in the Living Daylights when he uh, sails down a mountainside <laughs> on a cello case was I so impressed with a uh, I think you're mountain about triple X descension. Oh, <laughs> lest lest you forget. Oh my God, how could I forget triple X diesel? This is the only thing they were missing was an avalanche behind them. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't this the episode that we somebody said Dark Avatar and I threw yeah. my hands up in the air? Being <laughs> yes, like, Dark Avatar. He actually says Called Dark it. Avatar. Yeah. Called it. But yeah, yeah what, what, what are your thoughts on Unlock, where he's come from and how he's kind of grown into the big bad? Because I know early on we were like, well, there's got to be somebody else. There's got to be another person over him. But yeah, the interesting thing about Vatu is that he's not really there. He's not a really big presence. It's always Unalak kind of enabling Vatu to do his, right. his 
you know, earthly domination. Um, he's still the puppeteer in some ways. So I think that's really interesting. And if that has really worked for you, I, obviously, I think we've settled on the fact that the beginning episodes have not um, gelled perfectly into these. But um, how? what about Unalak now as a character? How do you respond to that? Well, yep. yeah, and there's only so much manipulation you can do from a tree, right? Because Vash right. has been stuck in a tree. But my question is, like, <laughs> how did he get, how did he seduce Unalak in the first place? Like, has he been whispering in his ear since he was a kid? Did he, like, pick it's this particular person? Thing. Yeah. I just yeah, want to say exactly. that you can do a lot of manipulating from a tree. That's another personal right. experience I'm bringing to the table. I, I mean, <laughs> the whole thing about Unalak having the experience, like, he has a connection to the spirit world. So clearly, right. like, that is, that's something that he could have used to talk about, too. I'm more wondering, like, I'm sure that maybe, maybe he even stated it, but I'm still confused as to why exactly Unalak wants what he wants. And that's surprising, because in this show, I think normally motivations are very clear, especially from your villains. Maybe I, maybe I missed something in this season, or maybe yeah. there was something else it's, online. Well, there was that... oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, there's I... that speech he gives in the tent where he's like, what what Juan did was wrong. Right, right. Severing the tie between the spirit world and the human world. But, like, it seemed like, and so that makes sense. Like, that his motivation yeah. is like the avatar shouldn't be the only bridge. We should be able to coexist with the spirits. But, like, Vatu seems bent on destruction and i never understand when that's the the big bads like plan is world right. destruction i'm like what do you do when you're done well, I can and like that's that usually vatu when your minions that. yeah right okay, vatu just wants to exist in like you know destruction i can understand him i don't understand why unalak wants that I or mean, is I that think, just vatu playing on him i think it's unalak having seen and known the story of the avatar and having grown up in the same family of Korra is well aware of the power that a Vatu human dark avatar would wield. So it's like, it's not fully Vatu. Like, if Rava was suddenly like, you know what, let's kill everybody, the avatar wouldn't be like, oh yeah, okay, now I just woke up in the avatar state, gonna kill everyone. So, I like, the melding, I think, is where the power thing comes from. Because it's not like, I don't know. It's not like he's trying to set off a doomsday device that's going to kill everybody. Well, he's a religious zealot. I mean, right. yeah. at the end of the day, they can't really be explained by, you know, logic. Uh, not to put too much, too much of my own opinion here. Uh, illogical. It's psychoanalyzed zealotry. Yeah, oh, we can do an experiment where Patches, you go eat a nativity scene on Christmas Eve <laughs> and see if you come back with Jesus powers. Oh my god, that'd be amazing. Well, one thing, like, don't you Let's think... Darren Aronofsky. Don't, don't you think that Unalak is essentially... Um, he, he's either an extreme religious zealot uh, on a, in a positive light that we might see him in the real world. I'm trying to make real world comparisons here. Um, and I don't know how far onto the positive end of the spectrum we could really put him. But let's say he's a Satanist. And if you're a Satanist... What, what do you uh, want? You that's... want you want Satan to come back and dominate so that you can kind of live in the world of Satan, which you see as, you know, this, that your spirituality kind of right. encompassing right. the world. So what, what do you want? You just want to live in that. You don't, you're not satisfied by the light mm -hmm. half, the godly half. This is not working for you. And you somehow feel a connection to you see the alternative and you back the alternative because I, I wonder, I mean, calling it like a 
making it akin to Satanism, I think, gives it a different color. Because you look at, like, standard religious beliefs. Like, every religion has a apocalypse mythology. Like, every religion is basically building up their people to uh, <laughs> to survive the end of the world. And that's, that's kind of, it's it's one of the big things. So I could see it like it's like something akin to, like, the rapture. Like, this is what Unalak is trying to build up to. Um, in another way, by the way, he is a great uh, foil to... Uh, to first season villain whose name is escaping me now, uh, Aman, where Aman was fighting for the real people, like the normal people, and for their rights and for their views. Um, Unalak is fighting for the spiritual side. And that is ultimately what, like, what this show is all about, is that struggle between you know the real world and right. the spiritual. I think, is it also, oh. But it, is it also partly like a power thing in terms of... Does he feel frustrated? Like he he does it, he thinks he's special enough and deserves to be mm-hmm. Avatar powerful, and so he's going to hitch wish, his wagon. To I don't this know. Tree, tree we spirit. didn't get any of that in this season. Like that's the thing. Like we spent so much time wasted early on that I wish we got to know more about this man and what he actually wanted. I just feel like he sees himself as a vehicle for the spirits, and I think that's consistent sure. from the very beginning. He just wants to bring the spirits into this world and, and, and put them in the lives of everybody on this planet. That's the most important thing to him. He's not an individual him. in his own mind. Right. There is... That's- well, I actually... I can't I can't remember if it was in these episodes of the finale, so I'll talk about it in the finale. Um, so that, lest was, I spoil something. But There's sort of a background, you know, story you can sort of infer that something happened when he learned he could use the spirits to gain power over his tribe that that sort of like got fed into something else but i don't think we're necessarily done with this because not to also not to talk about the finale but the rules as to what's special and who's special in the spirit world are still all up in the air Thanks a lot to the last 10 minutes of the last episode. but <laughs> We are teasing also, so hard right now. <laughs> also in this episode, uh, or in the past episode with Iroh suddenly, you know, coming across that, you know, people could go and sort of live in the spirit world for forever. And the more we get into the spirit world and the more we get rules to the spirit world, the more I think that we may not be done both with the spirit world and both with Korra's family, just in general. I kept thinking that Unalak was more of a Jafar in the end, but now I don't really see him as an individual. He's not really out mm. for power. Um, he wants to merge with Vatu to give Vatu the stage, which I think is He's really interesting. He's a red interesting. priestess. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Yeah, mm-hmm. she, she believe. Yeah, she believes in the beyond and, and giving it the, the platform it needs to thrive. And um, I, I, I mean, know, I think I just, that makes I, Unalak interesting, but I agree that he's not painted as complex as we would hope. I feel like there's some sort of something to be gained from the brother backstory in terms of him being the younger brother and throwing his older brother out. And the only reason, like, there's no reason to do that other than to take the power because he was the younger brother, right? And then he got his brother's place because he threw his brother out, staged this whole thing to throw his brother out. So I do feel like he's got some power desires there. Yeah. And now he's just trying to do it to his niece. But isn't that because right. he sees... That's a, that's a scar from the Lion King thing to do. <laughs> that's right? awesome. That is, you yeah. <laughs> know. Um, don't well, you see Tarlock... too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The actual source is, material for Lion King. <laughs> no, let's use Lion King. <laughs> it's much more palatable than Hamlet. That. I was like, should I say Claudius or should I say Scar? I'm going with Scar. <laughs> I like you Claudius. made the right decision. Um, and And... Wait, I wanted to point out, Dave, this is your conversation about the fight between Unalak and Tonrock. 
um, just about their their ice punching, and you were enamored by a particular moment in that. Oh yeah, I mean, I talked a little bit about the slow motion dive, but I just think that that's such a good um, example of how to animate bending on the show. Um, I don't know what it is, but you got to get the feeling that mm. um, Tonrock's really giving it his all and seeing some physicality amongst water bending, which doesn't, I mean, doesn't usually exist because it's usually an earth sort of thing. Yeah, but, they're all about uh, just, healing. Ugh. Yeah, I, I like um, <laughs> outside of, you know, huge gigantic fights between the avatar and spirits and whatnot that are uh, worked into the score. I, I like fights where you could sort of tell that everybody's giving their all, even though it's not on this gigantic scale. And I think the Tanrak-Unalak fight really did that for me. Even if their characters weren't the most interesting characters, their fight was really interesting and really well animated. Because you have the flowing water and the stiff ice and the jumping and the slow motion and the speed ramping, and it was great. How, how do you do... Well, that's why... Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to ask how no, you no, do I wanna, that. I'm curious, yeah. How you do that in animation? How you speed ramp in slow motion? Is that just more pictures? I mean, I thought it would look choppier, and somehow it seems very fluid and natural. Well, I put up a post on com a while back um, that was done by a sort of an indie animator who was doing a lecture on this, which is it's about when you change the frames and the timing in between those changes. So you have something like, I believe the post I put up uh, contrasted like a five seconds of oh, South yeah. Park Imagination Land versus like five seconds of 101 Dalmatians with Disney. And so Disney, there's this part in 101 Dalmatians where the guy walks down the stairs and he's flipping through his mail and he has like this sort of bounce to his step. And those are like even frame spacings, but like a whole bunch of them crammed in these seconds. Whereas South Park has like four frame changes and most of them are like tilts of the head and there's almost no motion whatsoever. And so then you get this sort of like, uh, you know, uh, snappy, low rent comedy feel you have with South Park, whereas Disney is trying to approximate a heightened version of reality. And so it's really about setting those timings against each other. And especially with action and comedy, you have to have things working independently of one another so you can't have you know water turns to ice and have water and ice be changing frames at the same amount because then they'll feel like the same element so it's really all these sort of very small animation decisions to make the motion all seem fluid and when it all comes together like that I, my mind reels at the amount of work that goes into that sort of one sequence wow fluid like water mm. animation bending. like ice and back and forth between the two and making it look like the characters are putting real effort into it. Hmm. It's really great. That's amazing. Yeah, it's funny how, like, if you look at classic Disney, right, like, uh, thinking like a Cinderella or Snow White, you see a definite flow to the animation that we don't really get anymore. And, uh, you know, more and more you have to look at anime for that. Like, look at Akira. Look at, like, when, you know, the city is falling apart and they're, like, I don't know, countless, you got spots debris and crap just fly like floating down on the screen imagine animating that yeah that's just insane to me i just saw the wind rises to the new miyazaki film and the yeah just the way they animate uh, you know the flowing of grass 
is amazing. That's something he's always uh, very focused on. The right. flow of water. He did that in Ponyo. I think on on his own, he animated the Ponyo, um, like all the waveforms on his own. So you see that a lot. And yeah, I guess we were seeing more of that in Studio Mirror with Korra. It's interesting. It seems like animation can be too realistic. You know, I think people are off put mm-hmm. by rotoscoping and the films of Ralph Bakshi that um, where he was using real human figures and videotaping them and kind of painting over them in two-dimensional animation. And, I mean, a, lo- a lot of that is what we see in, I mean, it's a rougher form that kind of goes between just hand-drawing animation and rotoscoping. We see in movies like Cinderella or um, Snow White, they were using human figures and models to kind of draw off of, which I think is really intriguing because you can feel there's a tangibility to that animation quality and it gives it a little more life but it's not so far past the line that we're getting these rotoscoped drawings that almost are are crude in how human they end up being like it can be too real and it's very bizarre there's a cool thing that disney does with uh it's motion reference or rotoscoping depending on what they're calling it for pr at the time but because the disney style has so much to do with fixed shapes and lines you don't get something like uh, the, you know, aha, take on me video where there are suddenly lines <laughs> appearing out of nowhere for five seconds to show a crease in somebody's face. But like when Snow White moves, you know, you only have two lines to show a rotation of a face. So it's all about like the jawline and the cheekbone and watching those switch. And so you don't get this sort of hyper realistic crinkling overlined mm weird motion thing you get this sort of controlled rotation of a shape and imagine 3d space which once again is showing up in Korra and boggles my mind <laughs> uh well just to kind of wrap up on this conversation joanna i'm interested to hear from you because we didn't get to hear you talk about last week's episode a new spiritual age uh Korra falling through the rabbit hole going to wonderland um and learning some important lessons as a child again I'm wondering if people can remember this because we have devoured the, the uh, finale and we're, we're processing a lot here. But do you remember um, watching that episode? What, what, what is being brought to the table from this kind of a new spiritual age, um, the serving of lessons to young Cora? What's being brought to the table to this episode? Are we seeing her learn things? Is she actually remembering all this stuff that she's kind of mulling over throughout this season i wonder and this is for everybody really just like what is cora learning and is it there in every episode um i don't know if it's there in every episode i was satisfied with where it was in the finale um but where it is in this i mean i guess the it's iroh right i i feel like the lesson he was trying to teach her was connectivity to your to your younger self and then we well, God, I can't talk about anything in the finale. It's really hard. <laughs> I know <laughs> it's interesting. Well, that, that's what I want because we learn so much from the finale. But I, I'm always curious about like how one episode will flow into the next, and if I was really seeing Cora having learned something in this because it's so action oriented for her plot. Maybe yeah, there's not enough time, but but like Cora is so backseat to this. Uh, we get Bolin and we get Boomy. Like, Korra is rather backseat in this, but also, like I said before, it's about Team Avatar coming back together. They call themselves Team Avatar, so I'm okay calling them that. Yes. Um, they have a hug moment. They, Team Avatar has a great hug moment in this episode. W- like, right after Asami was dealing some huge bitches. She was like, I'm really mad. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> weird. But we've talked over and over again this, this uh, season about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the way in which it relates to this show and 
Buffy always needed her Scoobies and was always in trouble when she didn't have her friends there to help her fight. And in this episode, it's about Cora coming, reunited, you know, she already reunited with Tenzin. Now she needs to get her other friends back, all of whom she drove away in the beginning. She isolated herself um, for a variety of reasons. And our question was, what is she going to learn? And it's got to be a reversal because it was – it was a bad move. For her to drive away Tenzin, that was a bad move. For her to isolate herself from her friends, it was a bad move. And so we see her sort of marshalling her forces for the fight and realizing that she can't do it by herself. She needs everyone around her. I'm not sure how Iroh taught her that, though. I don't know where exactly that lesson came from. Well, Juan taught her that, right? Her connection to her, her past selves. And around yeah. that, so. I think Iroh had something about, you know, being the light. Uh, that you know you have to find in the world and I think that was his contribution and so even in these two episodes Cora's like doing very subtle apologies to everybody she hasn't seen since she you know fell to the dark spirit but basically right. she spent the whole yeah like Joanna was saying she spent the whole first uh half of the season just being the toxic person in whatever scene we were in like, whatever was happening, Cora wasn't happy about it, even if it was just, like, camping with Mako. Right. So <laughs> it's nice to see that now at least, you know, she has a purpose and she's all positivity. And, you know, at least she knows she's the Avatar and this is what the Avatar has to do. What the finale is posed to answer is what does that have to say about Cora, the character, beyond the Avatar? Hmm. And I guess we'll have to figure out that next week. There was, I, for some reason, when Cora was petting Oogie and she said, yip, yip, that, that to me, I guess that might have been a little bit of a throwaway, but for some reason that had, that really struck me as being some sort of like awareness of the past, like encapsulating what the Avatar <laughs> legacy means. And, I like how and you're yet, reading all that into it, but everybody says yip, yip, so. I, well, yeah. no, Cora doesn't say Ten, yip, yip. Tenzin, Tenzin, Tenzin says yip, yip, yip. yip. Cora doesn't say yip, yip, and <laughs> she true. did, and That's for true. some reason that really struck me. I'm definitely reading way too much into it, but like. <laughs> Devendra's the toxic person in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Go, go bathe I, in some spirit you. water. I hear you, man. Um, <laughs> bring the you're light, feeling. bring the light to this darkness. Uh, she also let her hair down in this episode, and that was. By the way, great so look. I thought it was so good, so good. I never wanted her to put it back. I know. I don't. If that's. What, I guess <laughs> what it's a weird it thing to gravitate guys? towards. What does it mean? I know. What does it mean? She's we really like we letting were, I, loose. I was watching this with another female. I don't know. I don't want to make gender stereotypes. Anyway, we talked no, a lot do. about Cora's hair, <laughs> and um, and she said she thought it made her look like her mom a lot. I don't know. It's, oh. it, which is nice. That kind of um, killed my buzz just now. What do you mean? No, well, she didn't look like her mom. I, it's not in a bad she way. She is different. She is a different person now. Yeah, so look at her more, differently. She looks and more like a woman. can't do Dragon Ball Z here. So not everybody's getting bigger and bigger hair as they get more powerful. But you can <laughs> you can express it by just changing their hair. Yes, Cora goes blonde in book three. To emphasize I actually found that I found later, like looking at her ponytail later, I was like, God, I hate that ponytail. It just sort of like drops <laughs> off. Yeah, uh, the hair down was a great look. Well, the ponytail also seems like, you know, isn't it traditionally sort of like a training hairstyle to, um, I'm thinking like. Yeah, is that a samurai thing that you're like in training and then you cut off your your br or your um, ponytail uh, yes. to kind of release? Well, also a Jedi thing, but. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's probably just a good idea not to have your hair in your face if you're battling. It's probably, probably true. It's, it's like why cloaks are a bad idea for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> 
Right, the ponytail is a sensitive, sporty, uh, sensible, sporty like look. She looks very sporty spice when she has it on, but like I don't know. Yeah, I think we I all like agree how we're that spending down. so much time on hair. It's great. It's yeah. important. They made a choice. <laughs> it, they did. I mean, that is a very important choice. It is. You know what? You know who does do good with capes though? Airbenders. I was about to say. I watched this episode and thought that I really, really want a Tenzing cloak. That, like, no one can see my arms or legs that I'm just kind of floating around in this cloak. I need that Yeah, in my life. you're going to get one of those and then take that as an excuse to get fat because no one will notice. And that yes, will be it, fat patches. It's, it's the moo-moo. It's, it's uh, Homer Simpson's moo-moo but for, for airbender types. <laughs> world. I like that. Uh, and then Janora has her little, like, mini version of it. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I don't know what. I can't really describe what she's wearing. What what is that little? It has like an orange top thing, but it's over a yellow. I don't know. I can't describe it. I don't know women's clothing. We should do a whole sub podcast on fashion. <laughs> if you uh, if you make Airbender, Airbender clothing on Etsy, please contact us. Hank um, is bald. What does that we, mean? We were talking about this though. How irritatingly similar all of the waterbenders look in their mm. furs, like. They look more alike than the other tribes who look alike. <laughs> look alike. Just so they're in these furs, like blue and the fur. And you're like, which one is that? And honestly, when Unalak and Tonrock were having their showdown, I'm like, okay, I'm going to track the beard. The beard on Tonrock is how I know which one. It's a little tough. Unalak is a slender man. Tonrock is a husky man. I mean, yeah. someone posted on Tumblr the Loki is Tonrock. No, the Loki is Unalak. Thor is Tonrock photo split sure pretty much lines up except varick is more loki in this episode um Mm -hmm. like more thor the dark world comparisons varick is in a glass case they go to him for help after imprisoning him it's all harmonic convergence it's all it all goes back to thor the dark world Uh, (laughs) all right maybe thor the dark world i mean maybe Maybe Tom Rock would have been more interesting if he had like a special hammer or something yeah. to define his character. <laughs> Some what sort of the, weapon. What about the facial hair? <laughs> oh yeah, his beard is his hammer. Okay. Tom Rock <laughs> is so lifeless; he needs a hammer to really define him. That is, uh, that's a diss, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, to kind of wrap up this conversation, Dave, I know you wanted to bring this back, like macro level. Um, what happened in this whole... No, I'm not calling it a fiasco because this is a positive thing. We got these two episodes at 8 p.m., but earlier in the day, for some reason, they decided, well, maybe we'll give away the premiere at, at midnight, you know, when all the kids who watch Nickelodeon are up and awake who love to watch TV at midnight. We'll give away the premiere. What happened? Like, why was that a... That's a good thing, right? Fans I demanded mean, it. I think so. I think what happened is, is a very good question to ask because at one point, Everybody just woke up, and there was a Janet Vardy video that we had to reblog to get the rest of Korra <laughs> out all at the same time. Because, all right, so midnight is about the time that the episodes go up on Nick.com anyway, because it's after the West Coast airing time, and everything just sort of drops. So four episodes of Korra dropped because uh, we reblogged a post 10,000 times or whatnot. And it just seems very odd because... It's almost like an admission that the people who are watching this show aren't actually watching the show when it airs. And it seems like, sure. a, I mean, uh, that they could be either testing that theory or proving that theory. But either way, that doesn't bode well for me as somebody who pays attention to television scheduling for the next two books of Korra. Because if they could just 
randomly put episodes out whenever they want and make watching on television uh, sort of secondary, then we're never going to get out of... But aren't we of that age? Aren't we on the age where it's like a demanded social media driven? I mean, they don't need a set schedule. Like we'll tell you on Facebook, you follow us anyway. You'll do, you'll you'll show up when the do episode airs. Do what yeah. we say. But that's not how you, grow. you don't you don't grow audiences with on demand content because then you're counting on people to like pester pester their friends to start watching Cora. If you wanted to make this, uh, you know competitive primetime drama that's animated and on Nickelodeon, you have to schedule it competitively and putting it late Friday nights was not a good Mm -hmm. idea in the first place. And the idea that they could just wantonly give out the rest of the episodes does not bode well for making a television viewing time essential. And I could see why that doesn't really matter to us as super fans. Cause like I've said before, they paid for all four books. We're going to get all four books um, it's just if in terms of this type of entertainment becoming popular and Nickelodeon animation, Nicktoons very specifically being able mm-hmm. to move beyond a certain type of throwaway children's entertainment, it, it looks like they're not going to attempt to competitively schedule Cora, well, I, which I is mean, disappointing. I, I'd argue there that on demand doesn't grow audiences because, I mean, Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad, talked about how Netflix and having all the episodes there actually really helped that series because yeah. not many people watch Breaking Bad early on. They were able to catch up. It's a little different now because, yeah, this is more about trying to attract the normal fans uh, by streaming stuff online. But, uh, you know, all of Korra, I believe all of Korra, is on Hulu Plus right now. Like, people can catch up. Um, really? I'm going to verify yeah. that right now as you talk. Well, I, it's definitely, is it just the recent ones or is it season one, too? I think it's, well, it might be season one, but it's, I think it's just the last five episodes of season two. Okay. It may, it's something. Book I two. guess it's something. Yeah. I do, I do wish, like, maybe, yeah, Nickelodeon is testing out, like, if we, what can we do with with streaming, with on-demand, with just online releases of stuff? What if we created a Cora like, one-hour special and just only released it online? What would that look like in terms of our numbers? You know, released it online and then had people be able to buy it, like, a couple weeks later or something uh, digitally. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, devil's advocate here, mm-hmm. what it looks like is beginnings aired, the fandom liked it, it wasn't right. a huge rating bump. They threw away the last non-Studio Mirror episode and then just dumped the rest of the season on us. And it was like, well, our big backflip didn't work, so here you go. Uh, but, I mean, got restless. arguably, these episodes feel like they're meant to be double, like, paired right, together. Right. I mean, I don't think it's, it's, it's a rush to get the episodes out there that we got to Friday night and we got to, well, theoretically next Friday, but now at midnight yesterday. Um... That doesn't seem just like dumping the episodes out there. The one thing I'm afraid of, like, I I like that they're being experimental. You know, we we kind of hold Nickelodeon accountable for being all over the map with the show this season. But what they're doing, and they're showing that they have faith in this show and with experimentation. This is the biggest hit they've ever had. They feel Mm -hmm. like they can jump to any part of the schedule and see what works the best. Friday nights didn't work. You know, Friday nights later, maybe? No, that was not wise. All online, a big online (laughs) push. Yeah, just terrible, just terrible. Maybe Saturday mornings did make a lot more sense for a Nickelodeon show. Um, But they're, they're showing that they'll take risks with it. My worry is that it's creatively unfulfilling. I don't like the fact that we got four episodes 
in the last 24 hours because I want to dwell on the ones we've just spent 40 minutes talking about because they're really good episodes. How can that possibly be helpful? I mean, we are aching now to kind of talk about the finale, but I don't want to. And that's that's devastating, I think, to this effort. I mean, for fans, so we, we, you know, we, we saw these episodes um, differently than the fans, I guess. And for fans who are watching it air and then can immediately go online and watch the next two episodes, that's a Korra movie. That's two hours of pure, like, great storytelling in the Korra universe. And I think, I wonder, too, if they're, like, testing out, like, what would that look like? Well, are people going straight from watching the episodes to streaming it online? Or, you know, what do... I, I don't know. What do the numbers look like? Are they just get looking for a bump in the online numbers or something? There's a lot of stuff going on here. I also wonder, too, like Nickelodeon. Um, I grew up watching Nickelodeon and all those shows. Um, but uh, out of nowhere, Cartoon Network in the late 90s kind of came out with Adult Swim. And that kind of got this great uh, older audience, a mature audience, where they could tell slightly more risque stories or more mature stories. Nickelodeon, I mean, they had Nick at Night, I guess, in the <laughs> 90s, but it was not quite the same thing. Why is Dick like Van Dyke not kids? drawing the same audience as Dragon uh, Ball Z? It was for older kids. So I wonder if like Nickelodeon, like, <laughs> we need an Adult Swim. We need something similar. Yeah, because um, Disney wonder, even has it, right? Disney has XD. Right. Right, which is going to oh. start start showing Star Wars shows. So Cora better and also like Adult Swim. Like the thing about that is there. that there's a cultural cachet to that. Like they, that's been around forever. Like with um, you know, all the shows that have been there, Sea uh, Lab, uh, right. Aqua Team, Hunger. For Although Hunger the window Force, like, is now mm-hmm. open for Nickelodeon because Adult sure. Swim used to be mature cartoons. It wasn't mm-hmm. all this crazy comedy stuff. Adult Swim has definitely morphed in the last decade. Yes, because it used yes. to have a real anime. Emphasis, um, which actually didn't have a different name. What was the? There was like a a guy flying in space who would introduce all the episodes. That was Tsunami. Oh yeah, Tsunami. Was that 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 not part of it? Oh okay. Afternoons on Cartoon Network. But still, is at night. Well, I mean, you're still missing just in terms of a Viacom mature animation outlet. Since Liquid Television and Beavis and ButtHead left, uh, they basically sort of leaned on a whole bunch of animation studios that brought us the original Nicktoons. Mm-hmm. But even those got sort of farmed out by what a children's show is supposed to be in terms of selling things in budget. So it's like after SpongeBob, um, sort of a lot of the Nicktoons started to look the same, in in my opinion. But I definitely think that there's a way for Viacom to figure out, first of all, figure out a deal with Netflix again. I can't believe that they pulled spongebob off of the service even even Brike wants that i see brian on tumblr always saying like i don't know why the episodes aren't on netflix they would be great if they were having all of avatar the last airbender available to suddenly stream again would be fantastic but it would also be fine Mm -hmm. to maybe let cora uh travel a little bit so there's a nicktoons network uh i'm sure there's like four mtvs now (laughs) <laughs> like that have to fill airtime if you've already bought it and you're gonna throw it on friday at 8 30 why not try throwing it on friday didn't, at 8 30 didn't mtv network? play like a version of ren and stimpy at some point yeah. or they tried to revive that for a Which mature showed, by the way, how like crazy that show was to even be on nickelodeon in the first place. right it but wasn't that different when it got mature at some point yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that's it's it seems weird that they aren't cross-promoting as much as they could because I really don't think there's nothing like Cora on Nickelodeon and I'm not sure if they know right. what to do with it. And hey guys, you're probably listening now, so we'd love to interview people over the off season. <laughs> <laughs> Leave your pitches nah. for email, Dave. Um, well, can oh, I go, go back really quickly to something that I just said about 
the way in which we absorb TV shows and culture. Um, yes, you can a, go back to that point. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just that um, maybe it sounds petulant, like, and it's just a podcaster or, or reviewer thing because what do the fans care about the pace in which we chew things over? But I think I agree. You, you lose something. I love talking about TV shows week in, week out and sort of tracking the storytelling. And when you get something like the Netflix series, like Arrested Development or Orange is the New Black, which everyone is watching in a weekend, then you don't, or, or House of Cards. Like I feel like House of Cards would have been a bigger, more important show if it hadn't aired all at once. And everyone's like, okay, that happened and it's done, you know? And, and I think you lose something of the cultural engagement. You can try Uh, and skew it back by doing recaps or, or try and make it segmented even though it's all out there but in the end yeah you can't draw but it's done. the conversation and, and like, everyone's already seen the finale so why do they care what you think of episode three you know and so i i don't know i think you lose something there but i don't know if that's just a recap or podcast issue or don't if it's a think fan so. issue as well I, th- I think it is i i do not think it's just us being critical thinkers or writers and that sort of thing. I don't think it's just us because mm-hmm. people unconsciously want to have that conversation. I mean, why did we start doing this podcast in the first place? Because everyone wanted to come after an episode and talk about it and hear people talk about it and comment on the boards and have a big conversation about Cora. That's what we love. Um, and now when you get four episodes, how do you do that? We are, we're feeling the itch to talk about the finale because it's out there. I was frustrated yesterday because I didn't know. I want to concentrate on these two episodes. And I know people will want to, but it's easy to forget if you're not in that mindset to have that critical conversation. You're not being nurtured by the creative team behind the show to have to kind of dwell on the episodes like this. And that yeah, I think... You know, we are in a place where we have a, a tangible piece of, of writing or uh, content to put out there in response to television. So it might seem more of our issue. But unconsciously, I think people have the same problem. They don't have the time to talk about the television because there's more television to talk about. And let's be honest, the finale is huge. It's overwhelming. Everyone, that's what everyone was talking about last night, not these first two episodes. And come on, guys, Bolin and Boomy got their big day. Like, this is a triumphant moment in Korra history. We should be, we should be trumpeting this. There's fanfare, but not really. I don't really. want to jump the gun, but I'm fairly sure I'm going to come down the side of these two episodes were better than the finale two episodes next week. But Ooh, prepare, your, prepare your bars, I, everybody. I, I might be with you, whoa. but we, we, we don't want to get too far ahead. Why, why don't we wrap up our, our conversation? Are any more points on this on this macro television consumption discussion? Wanted to, not, maybe not this dis, uh, discussion, but I want to point out, like, I love the portrayal of Vatu, by the way. Like, we're not getting enough of him, but... Uh, He's voiced by Jonathan Adams, an actor that I've been listening to for a while because he's done lots of uh, lots of deep DC things. He was uh, who was he? He was like a Kang the Conqueror, I think, when on an Avenger show. Oh, back. that makes that makes sense. Yeah, he has this great. You need a great deep. Uh, I don't know devious sort of sounding voice for this. And these two episodes end with him in just like evil villain laughter. And it was kind of chilling. And I'm glad that he was good enough to actually portray there, that. There was a mo I mean, it's there an awkwardly whole, long uh, evil laugh in this episode when he emerges from the he just like ha ha yeah. ha ha and they cut back and forth. It felt like a Tim and Eric sketch, <laughs> the way that they would just cut to everybody while he's laughing, or like SNL no. awkward clapping. <laughs> he's the he's the only character that pronounces both A's and Rava. Rava. He definitely lets it linger, yeah. That's Everybody actually commentary like, towards you, Dave. 
That's that's the writers <laughs> jabbing you for not being able to pronunciate anything. An overpronunciating <laughs> villain. Bum bum bum. Um, I actually found the, the the end of that episode when he releases and harmonic convergence explodes across the world. It reminded me of the first book of Avatar: the Last Airbender, the finale of that, where they kill the Moon Spirit. We're draped in red. Uh, it's so right. chilling, and and to see it kind of um, drown the world in this in this dark spirit energy really frightened me. No, no, no. We'll we'll You're be safe. talking a lot more about the season one finale next week as well. <laughs> Oh boy, that's oh, true. That... It's very worth rewatching before that one. Yeah, Joanna, yeah, you wanna... yeah you mentioned something. Well, no, I just I I think we should talk about color next week as well. So mm. put it on the list. Yeah, that's that's color. a Breaking Bad. Choices. That's your Breaking Bad uh, obsession <laughs> creeping in. Why here. purple? Why? why purple? Why purple? <laughs> Um, why, why don't we wrap up uh, why don't we wrap up this conversation talking about some standout little moments from this episode if there are any left that we haven't talked about Dave did you have a favorite moment from this double Bob header back and you got a death scene you <laughs> stole my moment it's great. this was the first time I realized that Pabu and Naga are actually playing those characters in the movie it's playing yeah. Juji. And they have different and, names. Yeah, yeah. Juji right, is right. Pabu. I, I can't remember off the top of my head who uh, <laughs> Naga plays. But he does get to go, Nook, no! Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like Dave's... the little, like, uh, was it the mechanical, like, arms and stuff? Yes, the yeah. fake paws that are on, like, sticks, bad special effects and stuff. Oh, that was I like the genius. automatons. The automatons who literally went beep, boop, bop <laughs> in the movie. It's amazing and how the... well done that... that film quote-unquote the mover right. is i mean it's just spot on in parody and but also it's just rousing doctor who episode or something yeah <laughs> uh davindra do you have a, a favorite moment just to let joanna try and uh come up with like a new favorite the, moment. we definitely mentioned all of them i loved pabu and naga in stealth mode that i just that little that little frame just it was like half a second but it was hilarious but yeah i, I like i like all the big action moments in this in these two episodes and also the uh tiny comedy stuff like there's just so much of it that's what i love about the avatar world like these people can actually combine both of those in an interesting way i thought about you during the biplane sequence oh yeah i just thought so you good. would have loved that so good. it reminded me of tora 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 it was like pearl harbor <laughs> attack or something it was very cora 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 fans make that you... poster photoshop <laughs> i thought about you Devinder, every time someone was like in a mech suit or there were like big robots i'm like oh Devinder's loving this oh i love uh, Although not enough metal benders, just saying. That's true. Um, I guess I will then pick that uh, how Varric was in jail because I was really worried that the reveal, like the ultimate reveal of Varric, he would like turn into this evil mustache twirling villain right, who was right. just, you know, but he was still Varric. He was just like, hey, I helped you out. Remember I did that? Well, oh, I got Mako in jail. I guess that was bad. Like he was still Varric and very charming. And it's been, he's been such a great character. Um, so I was glad that, that we didn't like get a super serious Varric or anything like that. He's kind of like Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor in the Donner Super. Superman. Now that I think about it, I mean he's he's maniacal. He's he's just downright evil, but he's funny and will always escape. He'll always be back. I feel like Varric right. is not gone forever. And poor Julie, fight another day. Poor That's Julie, who has to uh, to follow him to jail. Uh, but it seems like she's the stone-faced killer. This episode made me be like, oh Julie, maybe I maybe you're the one to be afraid of. 
seriously. And we and Julie has a great finale moment that we can talk about too. Yes. Later. <laughs> you know, when when Varric does eventually die, because he's on a death list now, of course, I can imagine like Julie, like the Julie reaction. I'm just I'm just waiting for that. Because that'll be insane. Uh, and and yeah. just a few highlights for me. I loved Vera cakes for some reason. That Varric yeah. is also in the pastry industry, or he's like uh-huh. tasty cakes. Um, I think they make those like in the, Pennsylvania. I like the, so that the really frosting from on the top first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, when those mustache guys finally got fired. Yeah, <laughs> seriously, the corrupt cops are jailed. Um, classic. And I also liked that um, that the movie, the mover, sorry. Uh, calls back to two episodes two episodes ago we see Bolin filming this movie because I think mm-hmm. I mentioned that I was trying to place the talons that he was stuck in like what scene are they recreating from a classic silent film and there of course we see him in the talons of a bird I'm like oh that's a really wonderful callback that no one will recognize probably um and but my real my real favorite moment in this episode was boomy um punching a dark spirit or trying to 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 (laughs) wrestle with one um and that he keeps a dagger in his coat that he's just like he's so cunning he's he's just a wacky man but i i really loved that confrontation between him and that dark Mm -hmm. spirit and how much he gets his butt kicked that's the part when I yelled at screen, what part of non-corporeal don't you understand? <laughs> yeah, just keep throwing things at it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he understands any bit of non-corporeal. <laughs> yeah. And then he pied Pipers his way out of the situation, which yeah. is pretty amazing. Um, oh my god, and that dark spirit was so cute when it heard the music. It got so cute. It got bubbly. It's fun. Uh, I don't know why it didn't work on the rest of the spirits, though. Loophole. I love that it didn't though. He's like not, maybe, working, maybe, not working, not working, not working. Yeah, like he said. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> well, I think that about wraps things up on Night of a Thousand Stars and Harmonic Convergence and uh Harmonic Convergence. Her- what's Harmonic Convergence? I don't know. Um for her. Uh, and and because the finale is out there, you know, watch it a few times. Prepare for our final conversation about Book Two Spirits. Um and in the meantime, why don't we tell people who we are, and where they can find us on the internet. Dave, why don't you start? Hey, I'm Dave Gonzalez. It's for that first part, DA7E, which is also my Twitter handle, and I'm going to use my plug time to tell you to go to republiccitydispatch.com and tell us what you thought about the finale, because you can definitely think about it whenever you want. Devendra? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Devendra. I write about tech every day at venturebeat.com, and I podcast about movies and TV at slashfilm.com. Joanna? My name is Joanna Robinson. You can find me every day on pajiba.com. Uh, I recap TV over on vulture.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at quityourjrob. Vatu? <laughs> um, and me? <laughs> I am Matt Patches. Um, I am on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I write about movies and pop culture. And I recap Cora uh, at vulture.com, which you can read pro- hopefully right now. And um, I, write, I put all my stuff on mattpatches.com, which is my Tumblr. And until next time, the grand finale, uh, be well.
meets expression is an exposition Oh my god, am I human or a sort of vision? A superstition of spirit beyond distinction Between my capability and how I see extinction Spiritual confessors professing what they have witnessed Tell me, is it providence or ego mock intolerance? And what have we been given? What's been laid on top of us? A melancholic collar or a chance to view the process Is anything but bottomless? I'm telling you there's hope within us Tricksters written with some strobe-stricken sinners Slipping into hard drive, neon past lives too far Remember September got mad quiet, uh Lunatics and harvest moons The clear nights are always coldest but not bolder than youth I'm walking into autumn thinking shed heaven problem But the color of the falling reminding us of a coffin weight